Welcome to The Capital Cyclist, a podcast from Hosking Partners that, like our investment team, goes anywhere and everywhere across the investment landscape. Please subscribe to stay up to date. Thank you for listening. Welcome to The Capital Cyclist podcast with me, Roman Cassini. I'm head of ESG at Hosking Partners. Hosking Partners is an asset manager based in London, and we manage a long-only global equities strategy based on the capital cycle approach to investment. If you'd like to learn more about Hosking Partners or the capital cycle, then head over to our website at hoskingpartners.com, where you can also read a collection of insights on a whole range of topics, as well as listen to previous episodes of this podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Tom Gosling. Tom is an executive fellow in the Department of Finance at London Business School, as well as the European Corporate Governance Institute. He sits on the advisory panels of several of the UK's leading financial regulatory organisations, including the Financial Conduct Authority and Financial Reporting Council, where he provides input primarily on ESG and governance issues. In a previous life, Tom was a partner at PwC, having studied as an actuary. Tom also writes an excellent blog covering a range of ESG-related topics, which you can read online at tom-gosling.com. Tom, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Tom, I'd like to jump straight in by talking about the FCA's new regulations on sustainable disclosure requirements. About a year ago, you wrote a blog post about this when the consultation was still underway, which was broadly positive about the direction of travel. It would be great to start by hearing your thoughts on the final product and perhaps if you could provide some context for listeners who may not be familiar about what regulation like this is trying to achieve and perhaps compare it to similar regulation in the EU and the US. Sure. I mean, so it's fundamentally about consumer protection and ensuring that consumers understand what they're getting when they buy a sustainable Uh, investment product, uh, because I think to date it's been a bit of a zoo and there's been all manner of products marketed as sustainable without it being entirely clear um, what the consumer is getting um, other than potentially higher charges. So, yeah, I think there has been a need, um, given the clear demand that there is for sustainable investment products, for the regulator to step in to provide some clarity uh, on on this. So that's what it's um, really about. The UK is actually a bit ahead now of um, the EU and the US on this because they have actually gone for a labelling regime, which means that um, any fund that uses the word sustainable uh, in in its name has to adopt one of three labels for sustainable activity, which is either uh, a sustainable focus, which in essence means it invests only in companies that can currently be considered sustainable. The second is sustainable improvers, which means it can invest in companies that may not be sustainable today, but but they're working with them to make them sustainable in future. And then finally, sustainable impact, where actually the aim of the fund is to invest in a way that creates real-world impact on sustainable sustainability issues. Um, so to contrast that with the EU and US position, um, I mean, both of them have disclosure regimes rather than labelling regimes. So funds that uh, make certain types of claim have to disclose certain types of information to their investors. So in Europe, that's been the sort of snappily named Article 6, uh, 8 and 9. Mm. Uh, and that's really quite different from a labelling regime, although 
I mean, the EU's concern has been that that has become a de facto labelling regime. And interestingly, they issued a consultation in September that makes it look like they're quite likely to adopt a regime quite similar to the UK's, actually, an explicit labelling regime. We don't well, know that yet. It looks like they're going a little bit back to the drawing board. Is that the, the news that you're hearing? That does seem to be the case. I mean, I think there's a feeling that... Um, the article kind of 689 regime has been used in a way that it wasn't intended to be mm. used. And the fact that the market has interpreted it as a labelling regime and consumers have interpreted it as a labelling regime suggests pretty strongly that the market wants a labelling regime. So I think the EU has kind of concluded that probably and therefore is probably going to adopt a labelling uh, regime of some form. And the indications are that that will look pretty similar to the one that the FCA's come up with, which would be a, you know, good news for international convergence. And, um, you know, something of a coup for the FCA, given all of the complaints that there were when they first came out with their labelling regime, that it was different from, from the EU's regime. I think the only thing that might put them off is that, um, you know, there is quite a lot of feedback from the industry that says, you know, whatever we've got, can we just not have something new because the industry is choking on new requirements? But but actually, on balance, I think there will be a change. I mean, in t as for the US, I mean, they went for a, again, um, a disclosure regime, um, which, you know, across all of these these regimes are broadly similar buckets. You know, there are, there, are, there are strategies that aim to create impact. There are strategies that just aim to take ESG factors into account. But I think it's anybody's guess what's finally going to come out in the US. And one of the really interesting things about the FCA's policy is it seems to me to be raising the bar on, on what you need to do in order to qualify for one mm -hmm. of these labels. And what the EU did, I think, well, our view has been that Article 8 is, is the problem article because it seems to be slightly too easy to get mm. into. You can mm. define broadly all of your own terms. Um, and Article 9 is its own thing a little bit, aligned with impact. Uh, I understand what the EU is going for with Article 9 and Article 6 is you know catch-all for everyone that doesn't get either of the other two. But Article 8 seems to have quite a low bar mm. for managers to apply for and receive the label and it's you're right I mean I, I naturally want to call it a label because that is how our industry mm. is treating it um, the FCA and the impression I got throughout the consultation is that they have been trying to raise the bar mm. and anecdotally the evidence for this which I thought was quite um, reassuring was that during many of the consultations I would hear from other managers on the line who would dial in and say well, we're quite worried about this because our fund isn't going to qualify for any of your mm. labels. Mm. Mm. And I thought this was a fantastic thing to hear because we are, I should, I should mention, you know, Hosking Partners, our fund is Article 6. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we will uh, apply for an, for an FCA label. Mm. And the reason is that we don't, uh, the function of our fund simply isn't to offer a sustainable with a capital S product to the market. Now, we consider... What, what are called ESG factors, non-financial intangible factors as part of our investment process. We think it's a basic building block of good investment decision-making, especially if you have a long holding period as an equities manager. Um, but, you know, being an impact fund is not our function. There are mm. other market participants can do that. Where we have struggled is we think there are a lot of people that are exactly like us, mm. but they're happy to... Mm to apply for one of these labels, jump through a couple of hoops, essentially to make themselves more marketable mm. to a uh, investment audience who wants these products to mm. exist.
we're hoping the FCA's regulation, by raising the bar, mm. levels the playing field quite mm. considerably for managers mm. that are fundamentally not offering a sustainable with a capital S product, mm. who should be compared amongst one another, rather than, I think, what has been happening is that the market has probably been quite confused by by these these products. I think those are all uh, very fair comments. And I, and I think that one of the really positive things about uh, the FCA's proposal is that, is that they have explicitly raised the bar. I mean, they've put in some quite demanding requirements in order to qualify for a label. And I think that's, um, that's very positive, including having a clear sustainability objective, explaining how your investment strategy meets that, having a theory of change, which I thought was a really interesting thing to put in, and also the requirement to um, explain to consumers how the approach may have implications for the risk and return profile of the fund. That's all enormously positive. I think that they have very, very sensibly resisted the temptation to try to define too closely what a credible sustainability standard is, um, because I think, as you know, we've seen with some of the work around EU taxonomy, that can quickly sort of set in aspect something that can, can seem out of date very, very quickly. On the other hand, that is also a potential weakness in the proposal, uh, because that puts quite a burden on on you know, enforcement, you know, what are you enforcing against? How can you really say whether a, a sustainability standard is or isn't credible? But I think particularly given that they have now enabled funds that are, you know, in European terms, Article 8, to still kind of use relevant terms in their marketing, provided they give appropriate disclosures, I actually think that the incentives for firms to to try and falsely claim labelled status are quite low because I think that the reputational mm. you know, dangers of, of, of overclaiming have now become quite great. So I think that's all pretty positive. I mean, if you look at, well, what are the, what are the downsides of it? Because you know, regulation always has unintended consequences. I mean, I think the biggest one is, is, is less in, in the detail of the regulation, but more in the entire concept of the regulation. So this is a regulation that in its first iteration is based on um, retail investments, which are overwhelmingly secondary market investments. And I think there's a concern about whether any of these investments really have impact. And so, you know, there is a danger that through the labelling regime, the FCA unintentionally provides false comfort around a certain category of these types of investment that may still not have very much impact. And um, I've certainly advocated for um, you know, the FCA to try and come up with some sort of plain English um, language for consumers around the nature of impact in investment so that people actually understand some of these issues. And the FCA has just set up a, um, a project working with IFAs to try and understand how to bring them on this journey. And I think that's going to be very important. Because, I mean, there's a great piece of research um, that uh, Florian Heeb, Julian Kerbel, Falco, uh, Peitzold and Stefan Zeisberger uh, did called um, Do Investors Care About Impact? And what this research shows is that even quite sophisticated investors are prepared to pay for something that has impact, but they are almost completely undiscriminating about the level of that impact. Mm. So people, what they found in their research was that people would pay the same amount for levels of impact that, that objectively varied by a factor 10. Mm. So what investors seem to want is the warm glow of thinking they're 
getting impact. So there is a danger that we've just created a category of funds that enable the market to produce that warm glow at the minimum cost and maximum fee rate. Uh, and that's a potential unintended consequence that arises from all of this, I think. In the same blog post um, that I, I referenced, you also write that we should expect investments, and I'm quoting you, we should expect investments that have a material additional effect on real world outcomes to have a material adverse effect on risk return characteristics. And I, I wonder whether you could you could talk to us a little bit about this this tension and the muddle that the market seems to have got itself into here and how we might begin to untangle it. Yeah, so... Um I mean, the reason I talk about that tension between risk-return characteristics and impact is that um, for an investment to have impact, it, it needs to be allowing something to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And, and, and most investment opportunities that deliver market returns at market risk don't have a problem getting financed. I mean, that's the nature of markets. So um, I think, therefore, you know, the question becomes, well, what do we really mean by 1.5c uh, aligned investing. And one view of that is that, well, it means that you're investing in a way to kind of drag the world onto a 1.5c trajectory. And so that involves you investing in stuff that currently isn't being financed. And unfortunately, the reason it isn't being financed is that it's unclear whether it's profitable, when it's going to be profitable. Uh, because often its profitability relies on regulation that, 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 that doesn't yet exist or on, you know, rapid development of technologies that are, that, are, that are very, very embryonic. And so if you are investing in ways ahead of kind of the curve of government policy to bring about this change in the climate trajectory, you are inevitably getting into these areas that are much more risky. Or another area that's, that's, that's critical, of course, to achieving 1.5c is, you know, investments in emerging markets to transform their energy systems, which, again, is often, you know, very, very high risk and outside of the profile of normal institutional investors. So that's why I say, if you're taking that view of what 1.5 C aligned investment means, um, you're likely to be getting into high risk territory. But there is another interpretation of what 1.5 C aligned investing means, which is that you are going to invest as if this is going to be the outcome, that governments are going to get on the, you know, with the programme, collectively as a society, we are going to do the you know, massive task required in order to drag the world onto that trajectory. And so you're then making a bet on that being the outcome. And that's kind of fine as an investment thesis. But again, you know, that's likely to be quite a risky proposition in a world that doesn't end up in that place. Right? Because actually, if that's the way you're investing, you are, you know, for example, going to bet on the electrification of everything, everywhere, kind of now. Right. Um, but if governments don't follow through on grid upgrades, permitting connections, then as we're seeing in some areas, those you know, renewable energy projects can be stranded every bit as much as oil and gas projects. So, you know, whichever way you kind of look at it, I, I, I don't really see how this investment aligned with 1.5C does anything other than potentially expose uh, beneficiaries and clients to to, to greater risks um, and and return implications in a world where that is now a relatively low probability outcome. So even in this world where let's imagine a world where oil and, the oil and gas industry has, or actually particularly the oil industry, because I think gas is a little bit more complicated. But let's say the oil industry has essentially decided to shut itself down. 
is the best thing that an asset manager can do from a risk return point of view in that world necessarily to completely divest itself of oil and gas? I think the picture is unclear because, again, it comes back to how different timescales are aligned. And for us, this all comes back to valuation. So what price can you actually buy these assets at? And if if the valuations of some of these assets are being discounted too quickly, so to use an example, you can find a lot of oil companies out there now that are trading on 15% free cash flow yields. That implies that the market thinks these companies are going to be essentially out of business in seven or eight years. I would suggest that even in a world which is 1.5 degree aligned, even in a world where we see no new oil and gas projects being produced, the way that some of these companies can run their existing assets at those kind of free cash flow margins doesn't necessarily add up to, oh, well, you know, we've got 27 years to get to, to net to, to um, 2050. Does that necessarily mean that these organizations are going to be out of business in seven years? I'm not sure it does. So there seems to be, even in this world, a disconnect between between timelines. And I think perhaps, and you've written, actually you wrote a really recent blog about, essentially about this issue, about mm. how financial markets get comfortable with investing in or not investing in some of these interesting energy assets mm. and um, how that aligns to different time frames for um, their scrapping or they're continuing to exist. And I think what you talk about particularly is discount rates. It would be interesting to hear you talk about that a little bit because it's such an interesting area, particularly for us when we look at these things from a point of, it, point of view of everything comes back to the price. So when we integrate ESG risk, it's about, okay, well, what should we be doing to our valuations and what prices should these assets be trading at when we incorporate these non-financial intangible risks? Yeah, so there's a fair, I mean, there's a fair bit to unpick in, in there. Um, but let's start with this sort of investing in oil companies um, question. And um, I think there is often a, an incorrect connection made between the stranding of reserves and financial losses for investors. So mm. I think that, you know, we all hope that there will be stranding of fossil fuel reserves because if there isn't, we're really in trouble, right, um, from a, a global warming perspective. Uh, but of course, that does not automatically lead to uh, financial losses on oil company assets, because as you say, it all depends on what's uh, in the price. But even if you look at um, you know, a company like Exxon, which is probably the most committed to the long-term future you know, of oil and gas, I mean, I think from recollection, they have about you know 20 years of proven reserves, but are trading on about 10 times um, operating uh, cash flow. So already the market's kind of assuming that they're not going to produce all of those reserves uh, that they've got. And if that's in the price, what counts is whether the market's assessment of how long they're going to be able to generate mm. those cash flows for compares with the reality. And when we look at some of these scenarios, given that you know the incredibly dramatic reductions in oil and gas usage only really arise in the 1.5 C aligned scenarios, and given that the market is now assigning a low probability to those, actually the sensitivity of the time horizon over which these assets will still be productive, you know, is very great to the actual scenario that that, that comes out. So the difference between two degrees and 1.5 degrees is absolutely enormous for the runway for these assets to continue. So I think purely looking at it from a risk return perspective, I think there's sometimes some quite sort of simplistic notions 
uh, put out there that it's automatically going to be a really risky thing to do to invest in these assets because they're going to be stranded. But, but actually, if the market's overreacting to how quickly these are going to be stranded, they might be terrific short-term investment opportunities. And that creates a conundrum, right? Because, you know, there is this... Um, you know, sense of people not wanting to be associated with a problematic industry, but on the other hand, wanting to maximise returns for clients. But I think there is a question there about whether investors can, to some degree, have the both best of both worlds by choosing to invest in these assets, staying engaged with them, and where possible, trying to get these assets to lean into rather than against the transition. And one very tangible example of that would be, you know, it, I think it's quite possible for a climate-concerned investor to invest in an oil and gas company, recognising that there are good returns to be had, but going really hard on methane, for example, mm. you know, which is a massive short-term issue where probably oil and gas companies could be doing more without you asking them to destroy their own business. So I think there are ways this can be reconciled, but it does feel sort of psychologically dissonant to be wanting something no longer to exist, but still to be investing in it. And in a way, that might create opportunities for canny investors. Absolutely. I think it's such an interesting point that you raise. And it, it ties into this issue about, I think, exclusion. And, you know, in the FCA's recent policy paper, I was pleased to see that they've essentially said exclusionary policies is not good enough for you to get a label. You need to be able to demonstrate mm. positive impact, theory of changes. That was a big thumbs up. Absolutely big thumbs up. Yeah. Because broadly speaking, how exclusionary strategies work is they will exclude entire sectors or parts of the market. And it seems to me that it, certainly at the stage we are at now in the energy transition, which I think everybody should agree is, is still, unfortunately, but uh, quite an early stage, where we need to be we need to be looking into sectors and to the extent that the that public equities markets can drive change via affecting firms cost of capital um you know there's great work by kelly Shu and is it samuel hartsmark samuel hartsmark yeah um who have done this work about essentially the counter slightly counterproductive effect of uh, exclusion and divestment into oil and gas industries. And to summarise, I, I recommend people look this, this paper up. Um, but to summarise the conclusion, it's essentially that even if the logic holds that by selling a company's equity, secondary equity, you can in increase its cost of capital and vice versa, when you apply this to what they call brown firms, so high-emitting firms, if you raise the cost of capital of these firms, it essentially disincentivizes management from spending capex on the sorts of internal changes like investing in methane capture, which will lower those firms' emissions over time. And for on the flip side, for green firms, renewable firms, if you lower their cost of capital, it doesn't really make them any greener. They, they sort of stay as green as they were to begin with. Um, and this comes back to this idea about excluding entire sections of the market, or perhaps is a better way to do it, looking within a section of the market and rewarding firms which have sensible approaches to capital allocation, which understand the risks that affect them as part of the energy transition, and who are allocating their capital in a sensible way to deal with those risks. Surely these are the firms we want to be rewarding with lower costs of capital, 
but intrasectorally. So accepting that at this stage in the energy transition, um, for, good or, for good or evil, the oil industry isn't just going to roll over and die tomorrow. It's going to stay around. I would have thought the firms that we want to be here for the longest are those firms which are taking a most productive and constructive approach to the energy transition and managing the risks that affect them in the wisest possible way. I think that's right. And um, I think that investors need to let go of this idea that they can drive the oil industry into extinction from the supply side. Um, and actually, I think there are, firstly, they, they don't have the tools to do that. Um, even if they did, I think there's a question about, well, what were the consequences of that, that be? You know, I mean, so there are, there are lots of issues there. But I think that by staying engaged, I think that, that investors can make a difference. And um, I think in a couple of respects. So one you've, you've mentioned, which is around responsible capital allocation, how they deal with methane. I mean, these are sort of issues where uh, companies will be responsible, responsive to even a relatively small group of investors really pushing hard on these issues. But there is another one, which is uh, around the industry's role in policy advocacy and lobbying. And um, I think that you know, there's a lot of research that the industry has had a pretty malign impact on the development of climate policy through very kind of skillful and well-resourced lobbying activity, particularly in the US. And I think that if climate-concerned investors just absent themselves from the industry, that's only going to get worse because you're just going to have an even more kind of determined and resolute um, approach to this lobbying. And I think that climate-concerned investors who stay engaged can at least provide a little bit of a counterbalance to some of that as well. I'd love to dig more into this idea about how there is an emotional, psychological, behavioural perhaps element to investing. Um, and it ties back into this, this idea about 1.5 degree alignment. I think increasingly there is a view that those who adopt a, you might call it pragmatic or hands-off uh, approach to the energy transition, which might um, crystallize in the fact that they, for example, may still have some uh, investments in their portfolio in high-emitting sectors, whether that be in materials or energy or, or anywhere else. Because of the way investment works, whereby by making an investment in a company, you are essentially saying, I think this company will do well in the future. Or on the flip side, by not investing in a company, you're saying, I don't think this company will do well in the future. There is a natural intuitive part of this where if you have an investment in an oil company, for example, you're saying, I believe in a version of the future where that company does well. Mm. And of course, when it comes to something like climate change and the energy transition, I think all of us agree that this is something that's really important, this huge societal transformation that needs to happen. But how do you break apart this intuitive emotional element where what investors should be doing is being dispassionate and you're not saying I'm making a normative statement about what should or shouldn't be. You're simply making a prediction based on whatever model it is you use to define your investment about what you think will or won't be. You've put your finger on something that is, that is a, a, you know, a potential kind of conflict that, that is at the heart of, of this issue, which is that if you have, as you say, invested in, 
you know, oil companies because you think there's an investment opportunity. Uh, if you're a, an investment manager operating in a competitive market and some of your competitors have not invested in oil companies, it's only natural for you to feel pleased when oil companies then do well, but which might mean that actually, you know, the transition is, you know, is, is going more slowly. And, and, and this is, I'm not sure we can entirely get away from that, but I suppose what it does require is for investors to be really, really clear and consistent about what they're trying to do. So there will be some investors who just say, I don't view it as part of my role at all to influence the energy transition, and therefore I'm just going to invest where the greatest returns are. For those investors who have as part of their purpose leaning into the energy transition, then they just need to keep that purpose foremost in their minds as they make some of these more problematic investments. An alternative is to remove that cognitive dissonance by um, divesting uh, from those firms. But that then means that you lose that marginal influence that you have to enable that sector to transition in a responsible way. So, you know, as with so many difficult things in life, we can't make the conflict go away. We just have to manage it. Uh, something which has been a little bit perhaps depressing to observe, particularly in uh, popular media, is that increasingly commentators who adopt what we might call a pragmatic approach uh, or pragmatic point of view to the energy transition are seen as anti-climate or even more bizarrely right-wing. This doesn't seem helpful. Clearly there are some commentators out there that really are those things, but more broadly, how can we challenge this increasingly politicised divide between idealism for net zero and pragmatism about how we achieve it? Well, you're right. It has got very politicised and it's got caught up with these questions of identity, which are, which are so potent. And, and, and often the debate is framed as you're either on the right side of history or the wrong side of history and, and, and so on and so forth. And um, I think we need to try to avoid attributing a kind of moral value to these positions, but actually just understand that well-intentioned people can come at the same issue from slightly different perspectives. And um, as you'd expect, since I've started writing on this area, I've engaged with many people on all sides of the argument across the world. And it struck me that there are sort of three key dimensions that determine people's views on these. So one is... Um, your view of the climate science. So do you view exceeding 1.5C as an immediate disaster? Or actually, do you believe that the world will continue to exist in some form up to some level of warming? The second is, what do you think the efficacy of investment is in bringing about change? Do you think that investors can actually control the outcome? Or do you believe that they largely just take and invest in the outcome that is given to them? And then thirdly, is a dimension around the economics. So do you think that the energy transition is self-financing, essentially free or even long-term additive to value? Or do you think it's something that's a little bit more complex than we're taking account of uh, and actually may end up being, being costly? And I think there's such a large degree of uncertainty across all of those dimensions. And I think people can quite reasonably adopt different positions on those spectrums. But that's often... Um, you know, denied or not recognised. And just to give one example of that, I mean, if you believe that 
the world is, you know, essentially going to become unlivable very quickly if we exceed 1.5 C, then of course talk of pragmatism and fiduciary duties is just going to seem completely off point. It's going to seem completely irrelevant. Um, you know, equally, if you believe that sustainable investing is incredibly powerful and impactful, then why wouldn't you use that tool? you know, to bring about this mm. change. You know, by contrast, if you think this might be a little bit slower and more complex than we think to do, achieve the energy transition, if we think that the world will continue to exist in some form at 2C of warming, and if you think that actually investing is not a terribly effective way to achieve change, then you're going to come to a completely different outcome on these questions. And I think we should try to adopt a position of greater modesty that actually, you know, we sit on a certain point on each of these spectrums. But we could be wrong. And other people just sit on a different point. So, so let's just try and kind of meet each other where we can, based on a set of common facts, recognise that actually a lot of this stuff is hugely uncertain. And when we say it's certain, we're probably kidding ourselves. And try and have a dialogue on that basis rather than turning it into something that is almost character-defining. You recently wrote a blog commenting on an Oxford economics paper that suggests mainstream economic models may be underestimating the impact of climate change and that many market participants are failing to recognise the risks that may be embedded in their portfolios as a result. Could you talk a little bit about what that recognition looks like and how does that tension play against the idea of aligning portfolios to non-1.5 degree scenarios? Is there some kind of implicit conflict between those two ideas? Yes, yeah, so um, that article I wrote was sort of exploring this fact that there's this apparent disconnect between climate change being a disaster for the planet and humanity and markets appearing to just sort of shrug it off as, as, as an issue. And, um, I mean, my hypothesis in all of that is that the market views climate change as as a slow-moving disaster and therefore kind of beyond the range of discounting in most um, valuation models. And, and, and in a very simplistic way, I showed that you can assume pretty disastrous scenarios from 2070 onwards, but still not have much impact on markets um, today. Now, there is a counter view um, to that, and there are a number of papers that have been published recently on this, and you, you mentioned one of them. Um, which is that actually we're vastly underestimating the shorter-term tail risks of climate change. Um, and, and I think this is plausible, right? I mean, we may be, um, because there's so much uncertainty, we don't really know um, what's going to happen. Uh, and that actually markets should be much more concerned about this. So they would point to channels such as um, crop failures, which might very rapidly cause rampant inflation and impacts on markets. Uh, it might relate to, um, you know, severe flooding causing migration. It might relate to, um, you know, storm and hurricane damage making parts of the housing market uninsurable, um, which might have knock-on impacts into the finance sector because everything always seems to come back to housing and property at some point whenever there's a crisis. So mm -hmm. there are some sort of plausible kind of channels by which this stuff might come into markets kind of quicker. I think the issue is, well, kind of what do you do about that? Because, because I think market participants sort of acknowledge that 
some of these risks may exist in the way that they also acknowledge that there's a risk that there could be another pandemic, that there could be a war between China and the US, that there could be nuclear conflagration in the Russia-Ukraine war. But and, and these can have very, very dramatic impacts. But the problem is, in, until they sort of turn up and you see what they mean, what can you do about them, right? I mean, actually, it's difficult to know what the investment strategy response to that is, because the precise way in which all of this would play out is, is, is very, very unpredictable. So whilst it's clearly the case, I think, that thoughtful investors should be thinking about the impact of these tail risks on the companies within their portfolio, what it means for broader investment strategy is much more difficult. And I think in particular, it, if that scenario does come about, it doesn't necessarily mean that the sort of 1.5C aligned scenario has been a good investment strategy. Because actually, what is going to happen in that scenario? Let's suppose that the physical impacts of climate change become much worse, much quicker than we expect. The presumption often seems to be that this will trigger an overwhelming policy response relating to carbon mitigation, and therefore the 1.5C aligned scenario will soar. But there's an equally credible scenario, which is faced with immediate problems being suffered by their citizens, governments double down on adaptation, and that actually, given constraints on budgets, Actually, that means we do less on mitigation because actually what we do is we use the resources, tools, technologies, energy sources that we have today to make life palatable for our populations before the next election. So I think that even if some of these sort of extreme events happen, it doesn't necessarily provide support for that sort of slightly naive view of what a 1.5C aligned scenario is. I think you've brilliantly brought out some of the... Um some of those counterintuitive elements that exist within this this space, I think we've discussed a few of them actually, uh, where you look at the market and look at all the different market participants, governments, corporates, investment uh, houses, and how they interact with one another. And I think one of the common themes here is that often in something as complicated as the energy transition, often that first stage conclusion of our oh, okay x has happened so the next thing to happen is y make intuitive sense but then the more you dig into them you realize that oh but then after y comes z and then after z is back to abc and uh, the net result often ends up being almost the opposite of what you expected to begin with our approach to this kind of complexity is generally to try and embrace it and lean into it obviously for asset managers one of the key ways that you can do this is through diversification and trying to ensure that your uh, product is aligned to use the controversial word to as many possible future macro scenarios as possible we are we don't do particularly macro investing we're a bottom-up investor but inevitably when you are investing about as a current date about just under 30% of our portfolio is in energy and materials, almost all of that is aligned in some way towards this energy transition, which we absolutely think is happening, mm. maybe happening at a slightly different pace in a slightly different way than perhaps the market expects, and therein lies the opportunity. Um, but ensuring that broadness of alignment against a range of possible futures, because with something as complicated as the energy transition, it seems 
relatively unknowable. And the further out you go, the more unknowable it becomes. I think that a very important point you make there is that we're in a situation of massive uncertainty. And sometimes I feel that the way that we're approaching net zero alignment through things like transition plans and so on and so forth is slightly brings to mind sort of communist central planning, you know, looking at you know, 10, 20, 30 year plans. And if we're successful in cracking this and look back in 2050 and say, yeah, we managed to we managed to get away with it. We escaped the worst ravages of global warming. It will not be because every company that exists today still exists then and has managed to translate their operations according to this transition plan. There will have been some massive disruption that we never saw coming that completely upends um, everything. And therefore, I think we've got to have a high degree of humility uh, about our lack of knowledge about what's going to happen. And for fiduciaries looking after you know, beneficiaries' interests we have to recognise that those beneficiaries are going to care about what's happened to those portfolios, whatever the outcome is. Uh, and, you know, we have a range of outcomes from a unexpectedly swift transition to net zero to, unfortunately, a much slower and more disruptive one. And we have to be prepared for all of those scenarios. Tom, thank you for your time today. It's great to know that people like you are speaking to organisations like the FCA and the FRC and bringing a, a level head that sees both sides of this issue, which I think is so important. And in fact, to be honest, I don't think talking about it in terms of sides is, is particularly helpful because the more we do that, the more uh, these things seem to become politicised, which broadly I, I don't think is, is helpful. But taking a pragmatic approach to what investors really can and really can't do and how regulators should help guide both asset managers to do the best that they can within their areas, but also help consumers understand what those asset managers can and can't do and make informed decisions as a, as a result is, um, is absolutely vital. So thank you for talking to us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And um, I look forward to having many more of these with you in the future. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great to be invited onto your podcast. Thank you. We'll be... Um, off over Christmas but uh, back in the new year with our next episode I hope you've enjoyed the episode and please do feel free to reach out uh, and ask any questions we're always pleased to discuss these issues further with our listeners all the best you've been listening to the capital cyclist a podcast from Hosking partners please do get in touch with any questions or queries we'd love to hear from you